It's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan joining us, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. Uh, good morning. Great to be here. What's on the agenda today? Well, before I get to the formal agenda, I thought it might be worth commenting on one of the topics just discussed for the, in terms of uh, facial recognition. Yeah, yeah, your thoughts that on that. Yeah. Well, uh, my first thought about it is this. Um, we make all sorts of decisions in terms of how the justice system operates uh, that would not be decisions that you would make if your only objective was to uh, detect all crime. Hmm. Um, and so, for example, uh, we have uh, expectations in our criminal justice system like the presumption of innocence. Yes. That is going to reduce the amount of crime you're going to detect and punish. We have uh, values like the right to remain silent, not requiring people to get up and explain themselves. Uh, that is going to reduce the amount of crime you're going to detect. Yes. But that would be a value we'd consider more uh, important than detecting all crime. We would have other uh, values like, for example, uh, privacy considerations. The, the police can't just kick your door in and rummage through your underwear drawers in your bedroom to see if they could find drugs. No. If we allowed them to do that, we would detect more drugs. Yeah. But we've decided that our interest in privacy outweighs our desire to detect anyone who might have drugs hidden in their bedrooms. Yeah. And so we put limits on that. You'd have to persuade a, a judge or a JP that there would be um, sufficient uh, grounds to believe that there's going to be evidence in a place before the police can come in and conduct a search. Mm. And so it's with that lens that we ought to consider things like um, artificial intelligence surveillance of people and tracking where you are. Yes. There, there's no doubt that if you uh, permit things like that, uh, you will detect more crime. But you pay a price, and the price is going to be a price you'll pay in terms of your privacy. Um, and when you use a system like that, it's not um, the same as, for example, having the police go and look at a camera mm -hmm. or recording and say, well, what does this show? Um, if you have that uh, automated in a way that would track all people at all times, um, if you have no limits on how that's done, um, you are going to very quickly uh, surrender a great deal of your personal privacy. Uh, if the police could simply at any time look up and see, where did Adam go today? Yes. <laughs> where, where did he go last night? How long did he spend there? Yeah. Right? Is that his wife's home? I don't know about that. <laughs> right? There, there could be all kinds of... Um, uh, costs we pay for that. And so that's how those privacy things need to be analyzed, not simply would this help us catch more or detect more crime. If we, our only interest is detecting crime, uh, we would not have the uh, system we have now. We would just allow the police to rummage through your house and demand you show your papers and explain where you're going. And if you didn't do that, we'd send you off to jail. Um, there is that model. It's the Chinese model, yes. uh, where something like 99.95% of people charged just are convicted and go straight to jail. Indeed. But it's just that's perhaps not the best balancing. Indeed. And in fact, I, I recall a conversation I had with a Uyghur human rights lawyer based in the United States who described to me a system in uh, the province in which uh, the mass detentions are taking place where an algorithm will print out lists of names for persons to be arrested that day and officers will attend those residents and affect those arrests while having no idea exactly what that person allegedly did for an algorithm to deem worthy that they were arrestable that day. That's all very efficient, right? If and terrifying, it, yes. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so uh, on the subject of terrifying, <laughs> um, the um, one of the topics we've spoken about before has been uh, the 
really substantial overrepresentation of Indigenous people in prison. Yes. Uh, and we spoke about recently uh, some changes that were made uh, to the uh, policy that Crown Council prosecutors are directed to use uh, in British Columbia uh, in an effort to try to reduce the number of Aboriginal people that were putting uh, in prison. To yes. For alternatives to that. Um, and I had a very interesting uh, conversation the other day uh, with an experienced retired prosecutor, Georgia uh, Peters, Mm -hmm. um, and talking to, she now does work, uh, including uh, training work concerning the production of things called GLADU reports. Yes. Um, My GLADU report uh, is a report that comes from a Supreme Court of Canada case by that name, and the purpose of that kind of a report would be to inform uh, judges about uh, particular uh, factors and experiences that might have affected uh, Aboriginal people who appear before them. Uh, things like effects of racism or residential schools or foster care or uh, all of the other uh, social uh, impacts uh, that uh, uh, many Aboriginal people have faced. Um, and uh, there are a few things that come from that. Um, One which I think has become even more acute uh, in the current age of COVID when we're doing so many things uh, online. Um, And one of the issues uh, that's apparent when you look at the Crown policies designed to deal with this issue um, is the issue of trying to identify somebody who might be First Nations, because Mm -hmm. that's not always apparent. Yes. Uh, And it could be even less apparent when everything is being done online. Um, And so uh, one of the things which has been done uh, recently uh, in the interests of um, uh, ensuring people are uh, addressed in the way they wish to um, is at the beginning of uh, court proceedings, uh, lawyers are required to indicate what pronouns they wish to be used for themselves and for their clients. And that's to be done in every case. So you'll now see that. Um, Somebody would say, you know, I'm, you know, Mr. Mulligan, I'm counsel for uh, Mr. Smith, and, uh, you know, we prefer he and him, for example. Yes. And the idea there is not to single somebody out and make them stick their hand up and say, that's not my preference, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think that's a really positive development. Uh, but one of the other things in uh, discussing how we might uh, sort of advance these objectives would be to uh, have a routine uh, or have a requirement similar to that to try to determine uh, whether somebody who's appearing in court is Indigenous. And so make that inquiry. Uh, and if you made that inquiry routinely, it would ensure that people weren't being missed if they weren't self-identifying. Hmm. Um, and uh, as a way to uh, make sure that that's properly recorded, uh, to ensure that uh, there is some record of that made uh, in the court uh, documentation. For example, uh, in cases involving allegations of um, intimate partner violence, files are, if you look at a court file number, Mm -hmm. cases of that kind are identified with the letter K at the beginning of it. And the purpose of that is so that everyone in the system can realize, oh, I see, okay, that's what this is. It's not an allegation of a, you know, punch out at the bar, right? This is something in a domestic or intimate relationship because there can be particular concerns and considerations that would arise from that. Um, And so if you used a a similar uh, model uh, on court files, you maybe have a letter G, for example, at the beginning of a court file that might indicate, hey, we should be making some inquiries to ensure that sort of Gladue factors are taken into account uh, because that can easily be missed. 
And so if we had that combination of making an inquiry, um, and perhaps even at an earlier stage, if police could make some inquiry or if they're aware, uh, to try to ensure that files are indicated, likely indicated on files for domestic violence, um, so that everyone in the system can be aware of it. Hmm. And that's important because those Gladue factors apply not only at the stage of sentencing, but they apply at other stages of the court proceeding, including uh, at the stage of determining whether somebody should be released on bail or held in prison. Uh, A judge is required to take into account some of those factors when deciding whether a person should be held in prison waiting for their trial. Um, And there was a, I think, really powerful case recently out of Ontario um, that Georgia brought to my attention. Yes. Um, that was a what's called a bail review. And a bail review would occur where uh, a judge detains somebody and then a, a superior court judge could review that bail decision to determine whether there were any mistakes made. And this recent case out of Ontario, just came out last week, was a bail review of that sort. Uh, and the judge in this, the individual in that case was an Aboriginal person uh, who had a significant record and who was detained. Um, and the judge doing the bail review found that that decision to detain the person uh, was a serious error uh, because the uh, judge that initially uh, made the decision failed to properly take into account those Gladue principles that need to be considered. Um, And the judge in that case originally made just some passing reference to the fact that the person was of Aboriginal descent, didn't bother reading a 24-page report about that background, and didn't take into account they were dealing with an individual who had all kinds of just horrific circumstances in in their background, which is, I think, all too common uh, for Aboriginal people that wind up in the criminal justice system. This individual had what was described as a horrible childhood involving separation from uh, family, sexual abuse by a family member, physical abuse by their mother, um, discrimination as a result of their gender identity, mental illness, fetal alcohol syndrome, um, you know, depression, drug addiction, all of these things, many of which were tied to their um, Aboriginal background. Uh, and on the bail review, the judge found that it was a serious error to not take into account uh, the uh, all of that background, much of which is attached or flowed from the person's Aboriginal background. Uh, they also had separation from their uh, community, all sorts of things. And so ultimately in that case, the judge found that it was a serious error not to have considered those things, uh, and the Superior Court judge ordered that the person be released. And so those kind of considerations can only occur if we are aware uh, that somebody uh, is First Nations. And so putting in place a process whereby we would make that inquiry, uh, to my mind, would be a very good idea to ensure that we aren't uh, continuing on the path we've been on for the past 20 years, which sees, despite Gladue, virtually every year continuing to increase uh, the number of Aboriginal people who are in prison. So I think some very good ideas there and a very important decision for all of us to keep in mind. All right, let's take a break. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers will continue right after this. We return to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, what's next on the agenda? 
Uh, next on the agenda is a case dealing with the issue of medical negligence and what happens when something goes wrong when you're in for surgery. Um, that, uh, unfortunately, is something that uh, seems to occur with some uh, frequency. Um, but it's important to know that not every time something goes wrong with a surgery or medical procedure is there going to be a successful legal claim as a result. Um, and this recent case out of the BC Court of Appeal uh, is an example of how courts uh, deal with those kind of claims. Yeah. Now, this, the particular case dealt with a circumstance where a, a woman had a, a terrible, it sounded like abscess and a tooth and ex- facial swelling and all of this, and she went in to have her wisdom teeth taken out surgically, right? Mm-hmm. It was such a profound problem. Yes. Uh, and uh, really, tragically for her, uh, there was some there was a mistake made during the surgery, uh, and it resulted in nerve damage that uh, produced uh, never-ending severe facial pain. Terrible outcome for this person. Um, but here's how that would be analyzed from a legal perspective, and here's how the Court of Appeal dealt with it in this case. So the first level of analysis when something like that goes wrong would be to look at whether the uh, doctor or medical professional that carried out the surgery or procedure um, exercised reasonable care for somebody in that position. Uh, And in this case, it was agreed that the doctor had exercised reasonable care. Um, This kind of an outcome is apparently something which just from time to time can occur, even if a person is being reasonably diligent in terms of how they're pulling out your wisdom teeth. So um, it wasn't a case where the doctor had been negligent or careless in that way. But the second way in which uh, these kind of cases are analyzed is whether the person who uh, agreed to have the surgery performed uh, was properly warned about the potential risks of the surgery. Yes. Um, And what is required in terms of Uh, warning is going to depend on the circumstances and nature and urgency of the surgery. Because when a court is analyzing it, they're analyzing it from the perspective of where there is a failure to warn somebody about a particular risk. And in this case, with the uh, terrible tooth extraction that went wrong, um, it was also common ground that uh, the doctor had not warned uh, the uh, patient uh, about the potential of chronic, severe, never-ending facial pain, right? It's a terrifying it's prospect. Ter- I'm terrible. just, I, I wasn't even aware that could happen. No, neither was I. And it, it clearly, you know, everyone agreed, ruined this person's life. It's been going on for 10 years. She's in such pain she can't work more than a couple of days a week. It sounds awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had been given a, a form that said, I am aware that in some situations there's a risk of temporary and or permanent numbness Mm, or altered sensation in the lower lip, chin, gums, or tongue, which didn't quite cover excruciating, never-ending facial pain. And so it was a case where it was agreed that, the doctor agreed, I did not tell her that you could have never-ending severe facial pain as a result of your wisdom tooth extraction. But that's not the end of the inquiry because... A judge is then required to go on and analyze, would a reasonable person in these circumstances have agreed to the surgery had they been told about the particular risk? And 
that would be informed by the fact that she was uh, nothing else seemed to work to deal with her tooth extraction. Other efforts had been made to deal with it. They were unsuccessful. Uh, and she was dealing with awful pain at that point, swollen face and abscess and right all these problems. Um, and the judge concluded, and the Court of Appeal agreed, that even if she had been told there was some very small risk of this terrible outcome, mm-hmm. she would have nonetheless agreed to the surgery. And so let's give an extreme example of that. Let's say you are, um, I don't know, stabbed in the back yes. <laughs> and wheeled into the emergency room with the knife sticking out of your back. There, there would be a variety of risks involved with pulling the knife out or conducting surgery to fix the problem, right? Yes. Many of which you may not be at the time in any position to be, you know, avert to or consider, right? They're just going to wheel you in and do what they need to do. You, you may not have a, you know, a comprehensive list of you might die of the anesthetic and you could get an infection. They're just going to get the knife out and sew you up as best they can, right? Yes. And so that would be an example of, you know, if the doctor didn't sit there and go through the fact that there's an anesthetic risk and that, you know, you could have a scar or it could be painful, even if those things occur, the doctor's not going to wind up being liable for them. No. But at the other end of the continuum, let's say there's some completely optional surgery. Let's say it's, you know, uh, you know, breast augmentation or something, right? Mm-hmm. You'd say, okay, well, in that case, you're going to need to be very careful to ensure that the prospective patient is well and thoroughly informed about all of the potential risks. Because when you're dealing with um, something where the it's completely optional, right? And in that circumstance, if you're analyzing, would the person have gone ahead with this procedure if you carefully told them, well, you could die here from the anesthetic, you could die from an infection, you, you could get COVID-19 if you went to the hospital, yes. a whole list of things. It might well be that a re- reasonable person would say, I think I'll pass on the, you know, the uh, surgery for some cosmetic reason. Yes. Uh, but there would be a different threshold when it's, you know, my face is completely swollen up and I'm in terrible pain um, or you've got the knife sticking out of your back. And so this was a case where uh, the Court of Appeal agreed that the trial judge made the correct decision. And even though uh, this uh, poor woman had this terrible outcome and she wasn't warned of the terrible outcome was a possibility, because it was a low probability that that would happen, um, and because she was in um, had such difficulty at the time yeah. that she agreed to the surgery, even though the doctor failed to provide her that warning, no compensation was available to her uh, because they concluded a reasonable person with a you know swollen face and abscessed tooth and nothing else had worked to get it out would have agreed to the surgery even if they were told there was a very small chance of having permanent terrible pain debilitating pain in your face if you have this surgery. Indeed. Uh, and so, uh, unfortunately for her, uh, no compensation. Tragic story. We've got three yeah. and a half minutes left. Um, I'm, I'm reading here, it, it mentions whether or not judges can banish people from communities. That's far too good for me not to ask about it. Yes. So, um, the, you know, people might think, why don't we just send everyone away, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, there, there is a very broad section that allows judges, when they put somebody on probation, to impose conditions, the, the languages the court considers desirable, uh, to protect society, right? Yes. And facilitate the offender's successful rehabilitation in the community. Well, what if we just say, get out of Victoria, right? Can we do that? 
broadly speaking and generally, the answer is no. Mm. And this was a recent decision from the B.C. Court of Appeal, and it was a case where a person had been uh, convicted of uh, assault and breaking and entering, and the judge imposed a no-go condition on the person's probation order, prohibiting them from being within 100 kilometers of any place the victim lived, worked, went to school, went to church, and so forth. And so that got appealed. Uh, and the BC Court of Appeal found that the judge was not permitted to impose a 100 kilometer <laughs> radius. Uh, that was effectively banishment, uh, and that it would only be that kind of thing would only be justifiable in really unique and rare circumstances. You can't generally, as a judge, banish people from the community. And you could also imagine how that would be generally undesirable if, you know, Victoria and Vancouver and Nanaimo all started out, you know, banishing one another to try to force people to go somewhere else. Yes. And so the Court of Appeal reduced the radius from 100 kilometers to 100 meters, it being fair enough that the person not be allowed to go around where the uh, victim of the break and enter lived. Uh, but it wasn't reasonable to uh, impose a probationary condition that banished them completely from the community. Uh, and so essentially, that's not a, uh, a viable uh, solution uh, uh, for a judge. So they ended up settling on an area approximately one one millionth the size of the original banishment area. That's about it. Excellent. Uh, and we, we've seen ebbs and flows over the years with things called red zones, where we've periodically tried to banish people from portions of the city where, for example, drugs or prostitution yes. were going on uh, with really mixed success. So often that just leads to a whole series of breach allegations with the person tiptoeing back in there trying to buy drugs because, after all, they're still addicted to drugs. But I guess the message here is you can't just banish everyone that uh, seems to be causing a problem in your community. Well, back to the drawing board. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Thank you, as always, for the benefit of your knowledge and insight. Until next week. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Stay All right. safe. All right. You too. Have a great day. Bye now. Thank you.